This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, have you ever been in the back of a police car? Yes. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. Do, when do did we that happen? Talk about it? Well, I was arrested <laughs> uh, across the street. It was the last day I what? drank alcohol. Yeah, it was great. It was a great night. Oh, wow. <laughs> a memorable one. Okay. Sounds, sounds like fun. Um, I was going to be the one who was like drops. It's like, I've actually been in the back of a police car, but in like the most small town idealistic way, I was uh, driving my friend home out into the country from my small town and uh, ran out of gas, like literally a kilometer outside. And the police car noticed it and then drove us back into town. That's which is sweet. Very nice. That's that's literally my time in the back of a police it's car. It's fun that we're going to talk about privilege in a second, but that's good. Yeah, let's do yeah, it. Yeah, we sure are. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm Dave. And I'm The Machine. A podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then a kind of another apocalypse happened. Uh, somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine will threaten our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. And today we're going to be talking about Sweet Sweet Back's Badass Song. All right, Dave, I am so curious to ask you this first question, but I thought a better use of our time is to bring in a guest who can help us talk about this. So via hologram, I'm going to bring in Mike D. Which I just realized I don't know what your last name is, Mike. My last name? Yeah. Unless you don't want to say you, it. Like, you, you, need, to... you need to ask the machine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the all-knowing powerful thing over here, yes. The all-powerful knowing thing who's also a knight. Don't forget that. It's Michael Dennis is, oh. my, is my full name. But thanks, thanks for reaching out to me through space and time so I could be here to, to, to uh, represent for Sweet Sweet Back. Um, I'm so excited for you to be here. Like last week, Dave and I were talking about the movie Shaft and uh, we really utilized your YouTube channel quite a bit to do some of our research on. We referenced some of the videos and stuff that are on there. But I thought maybe you could just introduce yourself a little bit more fully um, and what you do. Oh, it sounds like it's time for a shameless plug. Yeah. <laughs> well, cue the sound effect. I am probably if I were to die tomorrow. I would be best known for the person who got yelled at by Dick Gregory for six hours. Ooh. Um, and uh, we have I all those videos. I only got yelled at him on. from five hours. So that's so I'm <laughs> saying. No. Touche. Well, it was, it was an honor and a privilege. Um, so, and that that was sort of like the the lightning bolt that lit up our YouTube channel, which is real black 
TV on YouTube, R-E-E-L-B-L-A-C-K. And, um, you know, as we speak today, we're, we're up to, I mean, we're, 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 we're running from the man, but mm-hmm. uh, we have about 800,000 subscribers this, this week, as of this week. Yeah, we're, we're quickly getting, I want us to get to a million very, very soon. So I can have some bragging rights on that. And, yeah, and, for sure. You and get your little Sav, uh, placard and stuff too that way, which is nice. The million is the next placard. And uh, Sav, Sav, financial Sav from all the trauma that Bob Dick gave me for for those two years that we were yeah. doing that. So, But, you know, I mean, you guys you guys are on your way. You're well on your way as well with, with your channel. I've been checking out your podcast. Oh, And I'm nice. really excited to be here. So, Thank you so much. Um, I guess my quick question for you uh, for real black like where are you actually accessing some of those like archival videos from are these just in your collection or do you are you like essentially essentially yeah. i mean there's some crate digging involved you know between me and and my partner charles uh, podcast partner charles woods we sort of like mined our collections he's been studying black film and images for the the majority of his life you know uh he's so between us and me the same so between us, we have about nine decades worth of experience in terms of researching and studying black film images and, and representation. I'll speak for myself. I don't know if Dave agrees with this, but for me, what has been really eye-opening watching films from the early 70s specifically, not that they've never watched older films, but I had a very certain mentality of what um, like black filmmaking was in the early days, and it's really been shattered over the last a few weeks of like stepping out and like really searching for some of these other titles that no one seems to talk about in in the broader discussion. So I think I think what people might expect filmmaking from like the late 60s and early 70s it's a lot I was going to say revolutionary, but that seems like such a a blanket statement. It's it's much more forceful than I think a lot of people think it actually is. My 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 go-to is like you have like Easy Rider and I think 1969 and that like that's you know hippie movement that kind of stuff but then I happened to watch uh Watermelon Man here just this this week and it's like oh my gosh I did not think that they would be pushing that heavily in in 1970. And Melvin's uh studio film yeah very interesting film I mean you know the backstory on that in terms of what Melvin fought for yeah, for those who don't know, I mean, Watermelon Man is a comedy from 1960, 1970, starring Godfrey Cambridge as a bigoted white man who wakes up one day as, as a uh, black person. Taylor's old as time. And that's supposed to, and, and then hilarity ensues. Right, right. You know, um, and the film is, is the first studio film directed by Melvin Van Peebles, first and only studio film directed by Melvin Van Peebles for Columbia. And uh, essentially, the things that he fought for were originally when he, I mean, it's very incendiary premise, you know, just, just a thought that, oh, this, this guy is going to wake up as a black person and, and discover his own bigotry. So mm-hmm. the initial concept was to like get a white actor to play the part, like, you know, like a Henry Fonda or something like that, like sort of like a comedic take on black, black like me, you know? Right. And, Melvin fought against that, and he says, well, wait, the, the whole movie is going to involve a black person. Why not have a black person play the role? And to, to them, to the studio bosses, that was like science fiction. Like, wait, that, that doesn't compute. You know, it's like, no, trust me, you know, the only way I'm going to put my name on it is if you do it that way. And then the other 
conceit was the original ending was supposed to, oh, it was all a dream. He was going to wake up from his, his black nightmare. Right. And um, that doesn't happen in Melvin's rendition. He becomes a, a militant and bands people together by the end of it. So, so you know, he, he was doing his best to rock the boat mm-hmm. uh, way back then. And, and uh, you know, Melvin, he's like filmically my spiritual godfather. <laughs> um, you know, I'm a big, big fan of um, his chutzpah. Right. You yeah, know, he goes for he, it, for sure. He definitely, when he was given the opportunity, he did not soft shoe it. You know, he, he, fought, he, fought, he fought prior to Spike Lee. He fought to get more black people and Latinos into the different camera unions and, and different unions involved in Hollywood. He's the only black writer to have two plays on Broadway simultaneously. You know, he's just a true renaissance man and an artist, a novelist, a cartoonist. And um, I think it's, it's fitting, though, that he'd be best known for the film that we're going to talk about today. Well, that's a great segue to kind of delve into our history with this movie. I'm assuming before this week, Dave, that you have never heard or seen this movie, but I don't want to speak for you. Well, you just did. And, yeah. and you're correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But thanks for letting me get in there, Kyle. Uh, no, I've never heard of this movie before. I think uh, we'll see what happens. I can't even sure. spell it, so I'm sure this will go well. <laughs> if I remember correctly, it's uh, two A's after the B and then five S's at the very end is the oh. correct spelling. This is how you uh, made the machine, yeah. That's right. Counting. I'll just say this very briefly. This is the stupidest reason to originally have known about this movie. When I was um, a teenager, I got really, really into The Simpsons. Like it was like my first one of my first obsessions. And it was actually the show that taught me that uh, TV shows had episode titles. Like there was actually titles for each individual episode. And so there is a season five, episode 19 uh, of The Simpsons. I'm sure it's called audio. Yeah, I know. Which is called Sweet Seymour Skinner's Badass Song, spelled the exact same way. I'm like, what is this in reference to? It seems like such this weird outlier. So, of course, I had to look it up and be like, oh, it's this movie from the 70s that I couldn't go and rent from my local blockbuster at the time. But this is literally the first time that I'm going to actually be able to watch this movie in full, even though I've known about it for like 20 years or so. But Mike, how about you? Like, When was the first time you encountered this film? Wow, you're taking me back. I, I, uh, working at the video store was the first time I saw the movie. It was, um, I forget what video label put it out originally. It was one of those big box videos. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Continental or something like that. You know, or, yeah. you know, I, I should have done the research. I didn't know you were going to ask this question or else I would have <laughs> Googled. But yeah, we had the big box video and, you know, all the older black people would come in and it would kind of stay off the shelves, you know, mm. for, for a while, you know, once Pretty Woman came out, forget about it. But <laughs> sure, sure. But for a while, that was the sort of weekend rental movie for the older people, and we we all got a kick out of it, you know, because you know it's 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 got a lot of things going for it. With the you know, it's very difficult to see it because it's rated X, mm-hmm. black exploitation. Eventually, we started. I you know, I started a whole black film section, and and that was that was the cornerstone of it. So. Uh, how long do you think it's been since the last time you actually watched it? 26 hours ago. <laughs> sure. Okay, great. Because he called me and told me we're going to talk about it. 
but, well, but I should, I should, I should, I should digress. Vinegar yeah. Syndrome has a very good Blu-ray of it. Yes. This uh, Real Black was invited to put our Melvin content on the disc. Uh-huh. Um, but unfortunately, we didn't make the deadline. But we do have Vinegar Syndrome is a great label. And we do have uh, bonus feature content on a lot of their titles. So mm-hmm. shout out to Vinegar Syndrome for, for restoring the film in HD. Because I don't know anybody else who would have made yeah, the taken the time. Well, uh, I think what we should do then, let's take a, a short break. I'll go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll talk a little bit more about Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Hey everyone, just Kyle breaking into the conversation again to tell you about all of the people that help make this show continue to go. We talk about it a little bit more coming up here in the episode, but I actually do really hope you check out this movie somehow. Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song is kind of hard to find, uh, but if you can track down a copy, it is definitely a conversation piece. And not like that area rug where you were totally sure was going to work with your setup. And then you were like, why was this lime green monstrosity something that I convinced myself was going to be a thing that's going to work with these orange walls? I'm really bad at design. Anyways, Kyle and Davis the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, we're brought to you by Pod Power. With Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to Is This For Real? Is This For Real is a podcast about various facets of black life in Edmonton. In the first season of the show, Breaking the Blue Wall, hosts Omar Salafu and Hanan Mohammed explore anti-black racism and policing and tell stories about policing in schools, accountability in Alberta's policing system, and the impacts of police violence on black Edmontonians. You can listen to the podcast and read more about each episode at isthisforreal.ca. You can also support the work of these podcasters and future seasons on Patreon. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is also brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you're choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. Learn more at parkpower.ca. One thing I have forgotten to mention that we should not blow past too quickly is, again, a big thank you to our patron, Green Girl YYC, who helps us out over on our Patreon page. But because we have just watched this in our fiction, what are your initial feelings here, Mike, of watching this here again? Uh, as an older person, especially in 2021, 2022, whenever you're catching up to this in your own machine. Who knows? Yeah. You know, what's, what's interesting is how relevant so, so many of the topics that he's challenging are still even 50 years later as mm-hmm. we, as we speak, um, police brutality, um, stereotyping of blacks, you know, a lot of, lot of stuff there. You know, when I first saw it, I just to take it back to the first time I saw it, I didn't understand it. I thought it was a shitty movie. 
was like, what the fuck is this? How is this? How is this successful? Right. Yeah. I've, I've seen movies. How did this make money? Right. But uh, that might be a lot of things that Dave is going to be saying here in a moment. I'm ready. I'm just waiting for my. I'm just waiting for my cue. <laughs> you know, but you know, but I've always accepted it. Sort of like Ganjin Hess is another movie that I've always accepted as an art film. You know, and it's not necessarily designed for commercial consumption. But you know, in in the past few years, you know, I've I've, I've built a relationship with Melvin where where it's caused, caused me to investigate his life and career more and looking at it as a piece of a puzzle, a puzzle piece in his life's body of work. I think it's, um, it's pretty strong. You know, there's, you could fit the plot into a thimble or any monopoly piece, you know, it's a little mm -hmm. overlong watching it again. It could have been 30 minutes shorter if you ask me, but, but he's, he's still trying to, do, doing his best within his own self to get the man's foot out of his ass, so to speak, right? So basically, when you look at it within its own time frame, he's attempting to use cinema to right some of the wrongs that he and the community of, of Black suppressed people have felt throughout the centuries, you know? So, and that's why the movie works. And I think it's an acquired taste, but I think it, if you if you approach it in the right way, it still works to this day. And you you can see echoes of it in movies like Queen and Slim and American Skin, which which were recent releases. Well, Dave, what do you have to say about having just watched this movie? Well, Mike took the words out of my mouth. I think I uh, kept repeating, "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> um, you know, the the first note I wrote actually was uh, art house. I mean, this is not. This is not a film made for the masses in a commercial sense, so I tried my best to to stay on the themes. Um, but visually, it's it, and as Mike brought up, maybe intention, very intentionally, perhaps uh, it's so assaulting. It's uh, it's it's an interesting experience. Uh, I was gritting my teeth a lot. You know, I had this discussion with my wife this morning. She listened to a podcast with uh, Sung Kang Han from Fast and the Furious. Mm, right. and they said something about how he only got that role. Um, there's a story about that. But one of the reasons why he didn't get cast originally, because uh, the casting director said, Asian people aren't cool and we need a cool character. Mm. And so it brought up this thought in my mind, um, is there such thing as good and bad representation or is rep representation itself important? And this is a film where I think and shaft before it where whatever challenges I had watching it, it is fascinating thematically to just uh, uh, try to understand that this is an expression of something uh, experiential. Um, but as a movie, uh, I was very uncomfortable on several, uh, several moments. There was, yeah. there's some gut uh, punches for sure. <laughs> but before I say like my initial thoughts, just so we don't lose that train of thought, uh, Mike, do you have an uh, opinion on that? Because I think that that is oftentimes what the criticism a lot of about a lot of the black exploitation films is that yes, this was a chance for like black actors to have representation and directors and writers to have their uh, say, but if that is consistently like crime, prostitutes, pimps, is that really the representation that we want? So I don't know if you have an opinion on that at all. This is the film that defines black exploitation. Yeah. And, and for a lot of people, it introduces a lot of the tropes that you would, the get whitey cycle of movies would have, you know, so 
you know, I was talking, I was talking to my podcast partner, Charles earlier today, and he was saying, make sure that, that you mentioned this, you know, it has three of the elements. It, it has a soundtrack album, yeah. which was used to help sell the movie. It is using sex, you know, hypersexualized main character, and then retribution against Whitey, you know, so, so the success of Sweet Sweetback and you, you have to, you have to imagine this is the very first time that people have seen these things in a movie, you know, and also this is one of the very first X-rated movies to be released, you know, not nationally. I mean, it, it got a very small release initially, and I'm sure you're going to talk about that. But, um, you know, so, yes, it, I think it was designed in a way to assault your senses, to, to leave you talking about things and to leave you somewhat desensitized. But at the same time, this film, unlike a lot of films, you know, usually, usually when they target the establishment, it's usually the villain is like the mafia mm. or a crime boss or something like this. This movie, he's going right up against the police and he gets away with it. So that in and of itself, you, I mean, I don't know. The, I, I would say the closest experience that I've had to that type of elation in a, in a movie theater with a bunch of people would be Django un, mm. Unchained when he burns down the plantation. And then secondarily, the end of, of Get Out, when yeah. uh, Little Rel shows up. You know, if you, if you were there to see Get Out and you can imagine the elation that you felt with, with him getting away, you know, it's the same type of feeling that black audiences felt when they said, watch out, you know, yeah. a badass brother is coming back to pay some dues. So, you know, and audiences were less sophisticated in 1971. What can we say? Well, I think it was like, I think it was Charles on one of the videos that I watched that, that brought up the fact, like, if you were of a certain age back in 1970, you potentially had never seen two black people kiss on screen before. Like, it just hadn't happened. And, you know, that's so mind boggling now to, like, try and conceptualize that. But there was decades and decades of, like, nothing. <laughs> and, like, this is a chance for them to actually feel like, hey, we're the actual protagonist. And, hey, we actually... Um, are achieving something i'll just say briefly here in this like non-spoilery section i'm going to bring back something up that we brought up last week which is i think a lot of times when we discuss uh, this type of film it is like I'm, i want to talk both about the film and how i reacted to it but also like how it does interact with society and like the importance of it and i think those are two separate conversations to have because um i was actually talking to dave before we started recording here today and for me, I think the making of this movie is more interesting to me than ultimately what the movie experience was for me. There, There is a film that was made by Melvin's uh, 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 son, Mario Van Peebles, 2003-2004, uh, somewhere in there, called Badass, which is the making of this movie. Uh, so you kind of get a more fuller understanding of like, oh, okay, so this is why certain scenes happen the way they are, and this is why we have the film look the way that it does sort of thing. But I'll just say, I, in the year uh, 2021, as I watched this for the first time, and I think it's partly because I was not expecting it to, to be as like art house film as it actually really is, that there was a little bit of a barrier for me. And I'm so glad that someone on the Wikipedia page actually wrote out the actual plot of this movie, because there were certain parts like, I don't really think I know what is happening at this point in time. It's okay. 
Kyle, you can just say that you're stupid. There are certain scenes and uh, elements of this that I respect, but ultimately, yeah, I did not really enjoy watching this film very much at all. But I think uh, we'll see. Like, uh, not that I'm going to be rushing out probably to rewatch this, unlike Shaft was for me, because I really enjoyed that movie, actually, when I watched it last week. Uh, I don't see myself rushing to rewatch this. Um, anytime soon but we'll see maybe maybe someone can change my mind as we as we go through this well that, that's the thing you know with with all due respect to mr van peebles when you watch this film it's like did they know what they were doing <laughs> right yeah <laughs> sometimes you just wonder yeah it's it's the rhythm of it is so different than than most movies that you almost like what what level of competence was involved with getting this thing together so that's where uh mario's movie definitely helps to fill in the blanks you know oh, yeah. and i and i do think that on his own level as if you just say true artist level melvin approached the film with intention he knew yeah. what he was doing in in the sense that he wanted to make an outsider movie something that hollywood was either not able to do or afraid to do and in in the process he helped invent guerrilla filmmaking yeah like really like this is i have barely any money and i am going to make this film <laughs> like i am going to make Essent this happen essentially sort of thing. yeah but you know just just while we're still in the critique thing i did talk to charles mm -hmm. he is not a fan of this film at all no he feels that it's child pornography that it's not it's counter-revolutionary because it, it's exploiting the tropes mm -hmm. of of sexuality every time he's in a predicament he uses sex to get out of it he does not align himself with any revolutionary attitude or behavior and essentially he runs away so he does not really confront any sense of authority it's just but what the film does this is me speaking mm -hmm. is provide catharsis for an audience that was starved of that type of image coming after the assassinations of you know king and malcolm x and and bobby kennedy this was this was the perfect storm just much like Get Out was the perfect storm for its time, I think this movie, the fact that it came out, you know, it just took advantage of the fact that Hollywood was in trouble. There was a, a desperate need for representation on screen of black people and that you could make movies cheap. And there was a loosening in the rating system that allowed you to put these shocking images on film. It created something that could be sensationalized and talked about. And the success of the film is largely in part due to uh, Huey Newton yeah. and the Black Panthers getting behind the film and saying, "This we champion this film, we champion Melvin Van Peebles, and then that creates a, a level of thing. But you, you have to put it within its proper context. You know, if you've seen a lot of movies, you know, if we were talking about, say, Deep Throat, you know, right. that's like the, the very first year big, this, yeah. big blacks. Oh, you're going to you're going to go in the machine for that? No. Well, no, I'm just I'm just <laughs> I, I had to research. This is this is going to sound like I knew this off the top of my head. But I was like, when was Deep Throat then? If this is what's being shown. And it, it was like the very next year. And well, Midnight, like Cow Midnight Cowboy before this. But yeah. But um, my, my point being is like if if I mean, you, you, you couldn't look at Deep Throat is very primitive film in comparison to today anything you know only yeah. fans make some um, <laughs> deep throat look like uh mm -hmm. you know song of the south or some disney thing that's a bad time to like pitch our only fans i guess then uh <laughs> <laughs> well my my only fans is free this month yeah first hundred followers 
can get me for free. So <laughs> before we jump into some of like the backstory and history a little bit more, one thing I, I've been intrigued, I don't know if it's just the two films that we've watched or if this is a broader trend through what is called black exploitation, is the representation of gay characters, which, which is kind of shocking to me, too. Because uh, in Shaft, there is the gay bartender. In this one, at least there's an effeminate man in the, like one of the it's first a gay, scenes. gay fairy god Yeah, that's yeah. right. Is, is that something that repeatedly happened? Like the um, underseen, I guess, representation of people um, a, 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 along with like black Americans? Or is that just these two films that we just happened to watch? Well, I mean, I just did an interview recently with Antonio Fargus, who played a cross-dresser in Car Wash and a gay character in next stop Greenwich village, you know? And, um, I mean, it's, that's a whole series of films. There's a document of the celluloid closet that deals with, with it, but within the black exploitation thing, I mean, outside of Fargus's role in car wash, I think a lot of it is used either as comic relief or in the, in the case of, uh, black women or lesbian Mm-hmm. White, white lesbian characters. I'm thinking of, uh, I think Slaughter or Slaughter's Big Ripoff. This is the Shelley Winters character, something like that. Some sometimes they have a like a really butch lesbian character as the mm-hmm. boss, and right. that goes up against uh, a Pam Greer or something like that. You know, you know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it was all part of the scene. I, I think. I mean, how did you guys take that? Looking at it today, because a lot of stuff is very cringy when you look at older movies. Mm-hmm. Um, in light of our more enlightened perspectives, you, you, there's a lot of stuff you couldn't get away with that you got away with back then. Dave, I'll let you answer first. Okay, put me on the spot. Well, I mean, I think that uh, are we going to talk about Shaft or are we talk about this movie? I thought let's talk about this movie first. Well, I, you know what's interesting? I, I definitely think the uh, fairy godmother uh, moment is meant to be comedic but there is uh, and this might just be a result maybe of sort of the 60s and this uh, attempt at civil civil uh, freedom movement but there's a, more of a humanity and less of a pantomime i felt like uh, there are character characterizations of course like the uh, when they're i think it's meant to be police interrogating passerbys to find out where sweetback is but you, yeah. you know you have that three uh, gas station uh, fairies if you want to call it and and that part is very kind of brief and weird you know the bartender in in shaft and uh, even the fairy godmother they have um there's a, there's a little bit of I, I thought there were a little bit of depth there was something about it that felt lived in actually this whole movie even though you know it's pretty upsetting to watch there is very lived in moments as poorly uh, constructed as i thought it was where you actually feel like each of these moments is truly lived. And I think that that mm. reflects in all, even with the Latino characters, as brief as they are, like they feel like they're part of the narrative uh, as opposed to just kind of a throwaway. They don't have any lines for the most part, I don't think. But, right. you know, they're on his side, uh, which, you know, that, that division has become more complex lately. Uh, even though we're trying to be, quote unquote, more woke, it's like it's gotten very muddy, I think, uh, yeah. Lately. I love being in the mud. Yeah, I would definitely say that this film, they, they started off by saying it stars the community, you know. You're right. And yeah. um, so, so there's, there's definitely sort of like when he's on the run, you know, all the people that are being interviewed and interrogated are sort of representing the misrepresented people, I think, within, within the context of this film. But, you know, not, not to put too much weight, you know, <laughs> on, on this motion picture. <laughs> 
sure. you know, I, again, I do think he did it with intention, but I don't, I don't want people to look at this like it's Renoir, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, no, it's enough. a, it's a half a million dollar budgeted sex movie that was designed, designed to, uh, make money to titillate yeah well yeah okay let's get into that here then so sweet sweetback's badass song was released on march 31st 1971 currently it's rated 5.5 on imdb but it does have a 71 on metacritic over on rotten tomatoes from 24 critics so not a huge sampling but it has a 71 percent rating and from 3,416 users, also not a huge sampling from Rotten Tomatoes, but it's at a 48% from the users. Uh, currently, it is available on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, if you try to stream this, you can't, at least not in Canada. There is no streaming platform that actually has this on it. Its budget was $150,000, but it would gross $15.2 million, which uh, with inflation means that it made 97 in uh, today's dollars. Its plot description from IMDb is: After saving a Black Panther from some racist from some racist cops, a black male prostitute goes on the run from the man with the help of the ghetto community and some disillusioned Hell's Angels. And so it stars Melvin Van Peebles as Sweetback, Hubert Scales as Moo Moo, Simon Chuckster as Beetle, and John Delegan as Commissioner. Anything you want to say about any of these actors? Nope. Did you do your research, Dave? No. No, you didn't. Okay. <laughs> uh, have we heard from anybody besides John Amos since this movie? Yeah, I was going to say, like, that, that's so funny. I, I mean, we just watched this movie within our fiction. But if Dave had watched this last night, he'd met, he texted me like, is that John Amos? <laughs> it is John Amos. Yes. He, look, he looks good. He looked yeah. great in it. Yeah. Young yeah. and... Uh, Young and strong looking, but it was quite a cameo. <laughs> very, very early appearance, yes. Yeah. yeah. And and for for those who don't know, John Amos from Good Times. That's right. Yeah, from Good Times. <laughs> uh, so written and directed by Melvin Van Peebles. So, uh, Dave, did you look up then any of this history, or is this going to be all brand new information for you? Uh, no, yeah, a little bit. Like moving to the Netherlands, yeah, adding the van, doing all that stuff. Yeah, very interesting. And as Mike brought up, I didn't do enough to understand. Uh, you know, how intellectual he uh, ended up uh, sort of filling out, but I did a topical, yeah. topical click, yeah. I will say straight up, this is a very, very compressed version of the history. So, Melvin Van Peebles was working in San Francisco as this cable car grip man. I'm not going to pretend to really know what this means, but from what I understand, it's the person who guided the cables on the cars and on the track, so you had to know when to grab them, when to release them, when to move them over so that they would go off the right track. So this is what he's doing. A passenger tells him one day, you should become a filmmaker. And so he does. <laughs> he just starts making short films and then goes to Hollywood where nobody is interested in hiring him as a director. So of all things, he decides he's going to move his entire family to the Netherlands, which, by the way, is where the van comes. He was just uh, Melvin Peebles before this. The van came because he was going to move to the Netherlands. However, on his way there, he's in New York City uh, and he meets uh, this guy by the name of Amos Vogel. He's the founder of something called Cinema 16, a film society where they show experimental films, also up and coming filmmakers. And Vogel has some contacts uh, around the world in international cinema and art house film. So he start, starts showing some of uh, Melvin's short film work. This kind of leads to some good, net, uh, good networking opportunities. So uh, Melvin makes a couple more films, publishes some books, 
was also the editor-in-chief of the French version of Mad Magazine for its entire six-issue run. Fun little fact. But fast forward, eventually Hollywood comes calling and Melvin Van Peebles becomes one of the first black film directors and as we talked already, he writes and directs this film called Watermelon Man. Uh, fights to get some of like the ending done, uh, as we said. It does like fairly well financially, uh, but not, he's not super happy with this experience because he knows he wants to tap into the feelings of unrest within society as a whole, but Black Americans specifically. And he knows that he can only go so far if he stays within the Hollywood system. So he can be provocative up to a point, but there's you know certain things he just would not be able to do. So he knows this, he writes the film, Sweet Sweet Back, and he's essentially told to his face, there's no studio who's going to finance this. So he decides to go the independent route, but he also knows a few other things, such as, uh, even though this is an independent feature, the unions are going to want to use union actors and crew, and that's going to just drive costs up, and he just doesn't have the money. So he decides to mask what he's doing by pretending that the entire film is a pornographic film. Uh, which allows him to hire people of color for all the different technical roles and to hire non-actors for the acting roles, which brings the costs way down. But even with that, some of the financiers he'd lined up don't come through. At least one of them goes to jail. So he funnels some of his own money into this, gets a $50,000 loan from Bill Cosby, and he finishes the film. I want to be very clear that was a loan from Bill Cosby. So he just paid the 50000 back. He didn't become like a producer so he would get money from this movie. Yes. That fact would be terrible for Bill Cosby's legacy. Uh, but what kind of really costs the most is retakes. Film is super expensive. They barely have enough to finish it as it is. So they essentially just start using like either first takes, going handheld, shooting things happening around the film so they could add into it later. Uh, the best example of this is the fire truck that shows up when the car explodes. That fire truck literally came to put out that fire in that car. So they just filmed the fire truck and him going around and doing stuff. So he finishes the film. But the next obstacle is distribution. So no company wants to distribute what they think is, again, a porno film. So he takes this movie to this company called Cinemation. Uh, and they say that they'll help him, but the best that they can do is release it into two theaters. That's it. Two theaters nationwide. One of those theaters happens to be in Detroit. Uh, and so Melvin makes this deal with the theater owners to not show other films and only show his so that he can make a little bit more money. Uh, and he goes on to basically any radio station that will have him to try and pump up attendance. And he's able to market this super effectively because, as we have said, it got an X rating. So in the marketing, he could say rated X by an all white jury, which, again, promotes this film a lot. Uh, certainly the uh, title itself is evocative. Uh, but then, yes, Huey P, uh, Huey P. Newton, co-founder of the Black Panther Party, sees it, encourages his members to go and see it. He is quoted as saying, this is the first truly revolutionary black film made, presented to us by a black man. And then it kind of becomes required viewing for members of the Black Panther Party. Uh, and then it goes on to make $15 million. So that's a, that's a very abridged version of the story. Anything you wanted to add into that, Mike, at all? No, I learned. There was a bunch of factoids there I, didn't, I wasn't aware of. So very good oh, job. Good. Yeah, we'll, have good to talk job to Kyle. we'll have to talk to Kyle about what the word abridged means. I don't think you... <laughs> <laughs> there is there is vast things I just left out because there's actually way more to the story than what I went into, but that's well, kind of your... well as long as you cite your your sources, you'll you'll get an A on that one. <laughs> that's right. That's that's good. Uh, immediate reactions to that though, Dave. Is there? Uh, I don't know. Does that do anything for you knowing how the movie was made? Uh, well, I don't know what the context of that question is, but like as far as uh, 
um, liking the movie better. No, I'm, I'm more <laughs> just saying that, that that story specifically does that is well, that in- interesting. Yeah, I think I mean as even with Shaft and all this stuff, when you look at films that are made under a lot of cultural pressure, the stories, of course, are fascinating because. Uh, how do you make a movie like this? How does this even exist? Uh, the opening sequence with poor Mario, I'm just like, yeah. I'm watching them. I'm like, how does how does this exist? Yeah, <laughs> you know. And uh, I want yeah, to come so back when, to that in a moment. But when you get the context, you're like, okay, I can see why uh, people will appreciate its intent, I suppose. But uh, uh, yeah. So we, well, we, wait, hang on, yeah. T- time out, yeah. Dave. Yeah. All right, all right, okay. Now we got to get Dave talking because yeah, let's do it. He's he's been laying in the cut here. <laughs> All right. Please give us give us the context that you're watching this film in. I mean, because I I agree. I mean, I love a lot of films just because they're guilty pleasures. And it's like, how did this even get made? You know. But um, I mean, first first of, I mean, do you grade these films like on a scale of one to ten, or you just like thumbs up, thumbs down on these? And then we do a scale of one to five. And then what's what's the what's the context that you come to this from? Are you used to watching American cinema, or is is your taste broader, or like, I mean, what, what is the closest thing akin to Sweet Sweetback that you can name? Ah, uh, I can't. Yeah, I don't know. You got burnt, Dave. What's, uh, is, that good or, is that good or bad, though? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't put uh, a descriptor on it. It's kind of like my question about representation. I, d- I don't know if uh, it's good to call it good or bad, but I will definitely say uh, using the word exposed is great. I... I don't know what my ground or what my uh, what's, the right oh, what's your what's your traditional diet of films? Just you know, because I mean, I, I think we, yeah. I think I think all three of us are pretty much in sync with with our feelings about this film. I mean, and and watching it with fresh eyes in twenty twenty one, I don't know if it holds up. Um, but within a historical context, I I think it's important to that everybody kind of be aware of this film. I mean, what what is your traditional diet of of cinema? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that uh, number one, for historical cinema, it's generally what's been referred by a service. So if somebody says these are the top 100 films, this is a must see, uh, I'll try to, I'll be attracted to watching those things. Growing up in Toronto, I have uh, some exposure to Asian cinema, good and bad, um, but they have their own tropes and their own stereotypes. Uh, so if you watch any kung fu horror, uh, gangster movie. They have their own avenues, their own roads they take, although that's all now starting to mix together. And then here I'll do everything from uh, like, I'm watching the Fast and Furious franchise again with my wife at night. Uh, Kyle and I just did five movies from the Letterbox Top 250, including a, my wife's Taiwanese, and there's a Taiwanese movie there we'd never heard of. Yee, fantastic. But so I'm all over the map, but very, I think, mainstream. I don't do horror B movies. Stuff like that. I haven't really spent a lot of time in that space. Yeah, but tied into your culture, primarily, you you like to see yourself on screen. Uh, well, I mean, and that's an interesting question. You know, being born in Canada, what what is my what is myself here? <laughs> uh, but very white. Uh, we'll put it that way because it's mostly Hollywood here. Um, okay. And now Korea's pushing, so I I see a lot of Korean um, content, but 
I, I don't know if I identify with that either. We could, if we want to go that way, we could talk about co colonialism and uh, and self representation if we want. But uh, that's something oh, that's been fucking. Parasite won Best Picture. That's got to be a that's big right. thing. It's a great movie, but I I didn't catch into the Korean films of the mid two thousands because I thought they're all shit. <laughs> as they're feeling themselves out and they were so extreme actually maybe mm. that's the closest thing you know i was watching um i don't remember them by name now but i mean old boy was great but some of the movies around that era for me were so melodramatic and so overly violent and just trying so hard to find um something central to represent what koreans were to the world yeah. so i didn't key into that at all i thought they were a little too much my parents told me that when they were growing up Every Korean movie is like four hours long and all you do is cry because, you know, same issue uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't have a good, uh, yeah, I don't have a right. good grounding in that. Okay. No, I was, just, I was just trying to get a gauge. And also the debut of Mary of M. Peoples. I, I hope we talk about that while he's yeah. closing. I was trying to think of like the, the question you asked, like, what is the closest film that I have seen that closely matches this? I'd probably also have a hard time. The only thing I can think of as far as like the feeling that I had watching it that's close is um, Antichrist by Lars von Trier, which I'm not a huge Lars von Trier fan, but that was another film that was like, I don't know what I'm watching <laughs> currently and didn't have a very great time. Uh, that's the closest I can actually think, but very, very different too at the same time. I would, I would say El Topo. Oh, like Hodorowski? Is that Hodorowski film? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they came around the same time. They both have father and son in them, naked son in right. both movies, and uh, are very difficult to discern unless you are on, in some sort of altered state of consciousness. Right. Like either very, very, very angry at the establishment or just super high on drugs, mm -hmm. you know? So. But you know, I mean, it's a different, different era and different time. I mean, people would go see these movies at midnight and other things are going on people are talking back at the screen i mean that's one thing that they, they left off the the blu-ray is they could have they could have had like a black cinema talk back track where they just invited a bunch of drunk people in the room to talk back at the screen for you dave is my talk back track basically <laughs> he'll just like <laughs> are you yell yelling at the screen like, dave yeah. <laughs> sometimes yeah, no. yeah i do yeah no I... um let, let... So it makes it fun yeah let's get into the 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 mario scene because i do want to unpack that a little bit and i uh i'm gonna so bring down the mood of this podcast unfortunately because i just have to speak from my experience so when that scene happens where you see like a very young mary van peebles who does get nude in this film and then like has another like, naked woman underneath him like i just had a very visceral reaction against that and i was like I feel like I'm watching child abuse and I, it took me a long time to even try and engage with the movie again. Like I had a very, very negative reaction to that. But again, I, I don't know. I, I feel like that maybe again is a different time, different thing. Uh, according to badass, it wasn't as big of a deal as what the film uh, seems to show, but I don't know. I don't know where people land on that. Where do you land on that, Mike? It's uncomfortable, but I think, yeah. um, and it probably, I mean, crap, you know, um, Mario made a whole movie about how traumatized <laughs> yeah. he was by having to do that for his dad and how his dad was tough. I mean, you know, I mean, bad, badass, the, the Mario Van Peebles movie is, is sort of like the black version of the great Santini, you know, they, they had a very difficult relationship, but 
if you don't do it, if you don't put things that are provocative in the movie, then are we talking about it 50 years later? You know, are we, are we, are we going to have, um, a, a machine on Finian's rainbow? Is that, is that the next one up next? You know? Well, yeah, probably we won't be talking about, yeah. Francis Ford Coppola's first film you know, or anything like that. Yeah, even, that's right. Um, you know, what else? The, the green berets, is that, is that up next? You know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy that we're talking about it or star Julie Andrews. I mean, yeah. star is my favorite film of all time. Yeah. I'm happy that we're able to talk about this 50 years later. And, and a lot of the reason is because of that opening sequence with uh, Mario and the, um, Losing his virginity to the prostitute, to the proto-porno soundtrack rhythms of Earth, Wind, and Fire. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We should also point out, like, Earth, Wind, and Fire basically did this soundtrack for 500 bucks, which I think is, which apparently that check bounced multiple times before they actually got paid for their work. But I think they did all right. Yeah, they did all right eventually. <laughs> I think they did okay. <laughs> uh, Dave, do you land on that uh, uh, in any in any way? Yeah. Lando, the scene, or we're still talking the about scene. the yeah, scene? The scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I want you to talk about more Earth, Wind, and Fire. Let's talk about that. <laughs> no. Uh, no, yeah, it's it's hard to get through. You know, when uh, he morphs, I, one of the things that becomes a trope for this movie is uh, the multiple and layered repeated visuals of the same event over and over again. Mm. So it's, yeah. it's uh, I, I don't know how because i didn't watch badass i don't know much about uh melvin's sort of uh, uh film aesthetic but it's pretty grating you know to start in that scene and then to just have it through the opening credits uh repeat and repeat and repeat and all of a sudden he morphs into uh melvin and i started thinking was that supposed to be metaphorical about the child inside of him like i i just got thrown uh so far so far out that I had no idea what was going on. It was it was such a great sucker punch, um, and then the rest of the movie did not disappoint in that sense because uh, I was disoriented the entire way. The only thing that I I'm listening to you guys and I'm thinking, and this is a, a gender problem, you know, or maybe it's a Roman Polanski problem. You reverse the gender roles there, and you have like a twelve year old girl being seduced by a grown man in a room to start a movie. I don't even think that's an X rating. I think that thing gets burnt in its negative. So there's a lot of weirdness when that scene happens. And I, uh, my brain kind of just felt like I had a stroke. I, I didn't know what to do. Well, you don't know how he got away with it other than the fact that he used right. his own child. You know, I mean, if he uses an actor and it's not his own child, how do you justify that? That's, right. that's abuse. No matter how you, how you do it, it's, un, it's not appropriate. You know, there are images of dead animals in this film as well. So There is, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think, again, it was very intentional what he was doing there. Well, I mean, we kind of started this conversation off a little bit talking about how relevant some of the stuff that's shown in this movie still is 50 years later. I, I do want to make a fine point of this, of like how different it was kind of into the late 60s, into the early 70s where we are about how different police could be portrayed on film. Because up until this point, police could not be shown in a negative light. There was a, kind of that rule with the um, with the Hayes Code and stuff like that, where like police had to be shown in a positive light. So this, they're, they're not even shown as bumbling, like the Keystone Cops here. They are shown to be uh, knowingly uh, going after the wrong person, beating people up without provocation, busting into people's homes. Should we feel like, oh my gosh, like this was like, it's still so relevant or should I be like super depressed that this is so relevant 50 years later? I don't, I don't, I don't know. know who wants to answer that really. I mean, I, I would let Dave go first. Uh, you know. Yeah. Well, uh, I think 
You know, from a sense of art in general and provocation, the idea that any art is supposed to paper over the cracks and make it seem like life's okay is dysfunctional. So especially when we researched a little bit about these movie codes, I have certainly through movies, a distorted idea of what it was like to grow up in the fifties. You know, everybody's white, everybody's got this kitchen, everybody's mom wears this fucking dress. And then when you read a little bit of history, now you read about some of the experiences like in the depression and through the wars, you get a bit of a wake up call, but then you watch a movie like this. I don't know, obviously the black experience of the 1950s, fuck, like historically. Mm-hmm. I just learned, for example, uh, my parents never talked about the Korean War, so I Googled it last year. You could just watch 11 seasons of MASH. If you read like what happened in that war, my dad was six or something. That is one of the, I think it's still the record of the most percentage of civilian deaths. That's a fucked up world to come from. But even reading that and my dad's Korean, I, I don't know anything about it. So, you know, if like right. we talked a little bit about Korean movies, if they have that to express and they make a movie about a tentacled monster rips people apart like you know it comes from somewhere i don't know it's uh it's important that we keep revealing people's true experiences but do we have true freedom to do that and does one have to have the intent to have a positive those are philosophical questions all of a sudden uh, like mary uh, melvin van peebles do we hold him accountable for using his son in a sex scene or do we talk about the movie in its entire purpose I have no idea. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I yeah, there, you can do both, I guess, right? It just depends on how you want to approach the film and discuss it. I will just add one thing, which I thought was very interesting. I mean, the actors were terrible, but I thought it was very like a horror movie thing where all of the uh, like the cops had this like disgusting plastic grin, like you know this mask that they were wearing, and I don't know if that was just shit acting or an, or an intent to try to just so show how like twisted is to be this person who puts on a clean face then takes him out of the back and beats the shit up. I, I don't know what happened there, but that's... I don't know. Maybe I'm giving the, the movie more credit. I felt like that was a more intentional choice because, I mean, we've mentioned Get Out here a few times. The one thing that I wrote down, like the commissioner says, like he uses the N-word, and then he's like, you know that word I used? Uh, it's a figure of speaking. You're a credit to your people. And the, like those are like the two black men on the forest. And it's like, this is still, again, still stuff that we're dealing with fighting for uh that sort of thing and it's just like i started off this conversation talking about like how amazed i am like how provocative this film is um and yet there is a part of me is like boy i wish there was at least a little bit of change in the last 50 years and maybe maybe there is a little bit more than what i'm giving it credit for but certainly it doesn't seem like we've gotten that far from what they're discussing in this film and trying to push for well, I, I give the film credit because, I mean, it was his attempt to address the issues of the time. Mm-hmm. And that was the first, that was the, the, the first film, the crest of the wave that became the black exploitation cycle. You know, we're seeing similar needs among artists to make film or make art or make music that addresses those same issues. I think, um, this is American music video by Donald Glover is, is, is probably the most impactful of, of those pieces that I've seen. You know, a lot of them fall short because they, for whatever reason, either be out of fear or their own self-conditioning, being aware of the rules internally, subconsciously knowing not to break them, you know, I think hurts a movie like Queen and Slim, which is mm-hmm. advertised like it's going to be the Bonnie and Clyde or the Sweet Sweet Back for our generation. And then when you go to see it, 
it falls short because it's still, it doesn't stick it to anybody. It basically just plays out the same way that we're already conditioned to. There's no rebellion in the film. I would say we're due for another sweepback. We're due, we're due for somebody else to take the reins, to really look and investigate what this film is about, to study the implications. I think the time is ripe for um, a sea change. I mean, we all know, especially with the pandemic, um, everybody, everything is in question. And I think, um, you know, you, people should reinvestigate mm-hmm. Melvin's journals in terms of what his intentions were to make Sweet Sweet Back in terms of what is it that I can do within my resources that Hollywood can't, and then start from there. And whatever, whatever that is, using the technology, the ability to, to use controversy to provoke, I mean, that's, that's the recipe that this, right. this becomes the blueprint for whatever the next iteration is. But again, you know, we're, we're talking about a 50-year-old film, but the human condition is always the same. And mm-hmm. the, the, the position of the oppressed is always the same. It's just with, with social media and technology, more people, or we're, we are all aware of it. We cannot turn a blind eye to it with the amount of information that we're getting on a daily basis about what the police do. Um, to misrepresented people, so that's my feeling. I don't. I think you could. There, there should have been. You, if if the technology was available, there would have been a film. I mean, Native Son did the same thing for its time. You know, Richard Wright's book. I mean, there's a film. It's a very. And if you want to look at that film, that's equally bad. You know, <laughs> um, you know, you have 40 year old Richard Wright playing 19 year old Bigger Thomas. You know, but there's always these attempts to to address societal issues, but then there's also a fear. And the price that Melvin paid to make this film is that he never really made another film again. You know, yeah, he went to Broadway. Yeah. He made he made a film of his Broadway play. He got fired from a Richard Pryor movie and he wrote he has screenplay credits on a lot of movies, but he was never really allowed to direct again. And you know, you could argue, well, you know, maybe he took it too far or maybe people saw this movie and said, I don't think he knows what he's doing. I, I can't. I can't trust him with my five million dollars or whatever, you know. But for whatever reason, uh, Sweet Sweetback stands as, like you said, you can't. You can't compare it to anything else, really. You know, in in any true terms, it, it stands alone. So uh, it's interesting you say like we need a new Sweetback because as I was watching this, I kind of had that in the back of my head. Like I think I would want to see this maybe be attempted to be adapted into modern day. I think you would have to change certain plot points here and there, but the, the thrust of it, I think you could adapt into a more, I don't know, an even more provocative film here nowadays. Uh, but I guess what my real question is, do you have a sense of uh, a filmmaker currently working that you could see that would be that provocative and who would want to try and push that message forward a little bit more? Well, I don't know if it's everybody's trying to make money, so they're not going to do yeah. this. They're not, they're not going to make this movie. You know, they they want to continue to work. Yeah. And this, I mean, you know, you talk about the taboos that he's addressing and breaking or or exposing in this movie. The biggest one is you you know, crime can't pay in American film. You know, so the minute there's even a, a thought that he gets away with it, then that that irritates one half of 
the, the audience. One half is automatically turned off, and those tend to be the one half that have the power to control and have money, you know. And, and Melvin said it himself the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rules, you know. So, and you have to include those people in your mission, you know. You, 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 there's a price to be paid when you d- choose to do everything independently and by yourself. If you're successful, there's resentment. And if you're not successful, then you don't get to play again. You know, you, you've, you've extinguished your resources. So that's why we get movies like this every once in a while. But somebody has to be the first, you know, and you, you can see it in, in these cycles as they start to happen. With any technology, any, any, any form of commerce or, or technology, it's always a maverick who creates a new idea, and then that becomes a template. So in film, you can look to movies like Blair Witch. What happened to those guys? Sure you know, where, yeah. where, where did they go? Well killed by the Blair Witch, obviously. I mean, you know, Key and Peele, they, they're the only ones that are lucky where they, well, they, they, rode, they rode the horror film genre with Get Out. But um, there's, there's a lot of people that are risk takers that, they get a lot of credit, but they don't necessarily reap the rewards over time. You know, once mm-hmm. once that idea proves to be successful and it becomes co-opted. So um, you, you have to give Melvin still around, you know, he's in his 80s mm-hmm. and he's he's still out there kicking ass. And I'm so glad that you're giving him his flowers and, and ta- you know, just like introducing his work in such a refined way, a respective way, respected way to your audience because i think people really should be aware of of this while you know i mean as we record this we just lost cicely tyson you know and yeah. i hope i hope people are spending some time looking at that body of work you know melvin you know that's unless you really dig deep and investigate his writing and all that other stuff you basically can do it in a day he's got three films but yeah you know, to answer your question i i think people are too cowardly to to really do it or they would be too motivated to try and bring more story to the movie and not make it a visceral experience for people the audience is also a big part of how movies are received what haven't we seen to this day you know so to remake a sweet sweet back is almost asking to make a conventional film because you almost have to over explain every little plot point and beat and then 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 it's not sweet sweetback anymore. It's it's um the lost man, which is the Sydney Poitier studio mm-hmm. inter- remake of the Informer. So we've seen things like this before, but not not necessarily done the same way. the The 2021 2022 version of Sweet Sweetback would be somebody that's, that's looking at the times, looking at the technology, looking at what no one else is doing, and figuring out a way to do it in the most viably commercial way possible. And I don't, I don't know, those are the questions that he asked himself. Those are the questions that need to be answered because, you know, I know you're enjoying Fast and the Furious, but that shit puts me to sleep. <laughs> I, I fall asleep on Fast and Furious. I'm so, so desensitized from watching those big tentpole movies that I mm-hmm. literally have the opposite reaction to them. Uh, so take that, Dave. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, um, no, I, <laughs> no, no. I love, I love, I love everything about them. It's just my personal taste. I've been desensitized to, yeah. to the 
to the point of boredom, even the best Marvel movies, not, not to make it personal. Um, I mean, Marvel does good movies, but when they, when they bring the Avengers together, I'm so oversense. It's just yeah, yeah. like just too much at one time. Stimulate. Yeah. Overstimulate. Thank you for the word. Yeah, I uh, I like to tease Kyle a lot about that too because he's a huge MCU fanboy. But my my, <laughs> okay. my things uh, Fast and Furious. No, I, I uh, you know what I think um, I I'm hearing is you know you're obviously a very uh, academic intellectual person, Mike, and I, I think you've studied I, I clearly you study you, you know cinema. Um, Thank you. When I put on a hat and uh, become very critical, I I also can't watch you know like stepbrothers or some stupid, you know, inane, silly stuff. But I want to keep that space. But like your challenging question at the beginning, looking at the whole box and trying to see like, what lens am I seeing everything through? That's a difficult thing. And then Kyle's question of like, essentially who can still be a provocateur in this world, you know, the world of the internet, the world where you can click on something and see anything you want. um, If you are brave enough to see it and still have mass. I mean, that's, that's a scary question. Man. <laughs> and maybe one of the problems with capitalism is whoever does it wants ownership of it. You know, they want the credit and that's where the trap is. Uh, if you want someone to actually make that movie, Kyle, you need someone who's going to be so selfless. They're going to throw the shit literally at the wall and be able to walk away from it and just or Or be, be comfortable. Like, happened. if this is my only movie I no. make, it's going to be the only movie I make. Yeah. Well, just take it away from Sweetback and look at Blair Witch. I mean, that's essentially that generation's version of what Sweet Sweetback did. It took video emerging video technology and made a story that w- and marketed it in a way with the internet. I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the marketing. Oh, yes. On that yeah. Movie. I very yeah. much remember There are so it. many people, even though it was very clear that it was a fake, it was a, a fictional film, there were a lot of people that went in thinking that it was real. I'm pretty sure it was real. You know, so that was an advent. But it also opens the door for you know, the Blumhouse franchise, Paranormal Activity, mm-hmm. totally capitalizes off of the, the technology innovation of Blair Witch, you know? Mm. Um, and why shouldn't it? You know, that's the, other, that's the other point. We don't all have to reinvent the wheel every time. We're done here. Uh, well, the machine has told us that we have to wrap it up here. So we <laughs> get to ask our favorite question here then is, uh, does this film hold up and is it still culturally relevant? Uh, Mike, you've kind of answered that sort of already, but I'll just ask it to you again. Does it hold up? Not really. I mean, you have to look at it through the lens of 1969, 1970 audiences. Is it culturally relevant? Um, the themes and address the themes that it addresses will always be culturally relevant because there's always going to be some oppressed people and they tend to be of darker hue. Uh, Dave, what do you think? Yeah, I have to absolutely mirror that. I don't know if I'd ever tell someone to actually watch this movie for the movie itself, uh, but definitely if I ever met someone who wanted to talk about, uh, yeah, oppression, civil experience, I would say you should watch this movie <laughs> with a huge grain of salt because you will be upset at the end, but the themes are universal. We talked about this with Shaft too. I mean, there's a reason why we're still marching. It's, uh, yeah, oppression's oppression, so... Yeah, it's like I, I'm right, right there with with both of you. I think I would recommend people watch it just to have that experience. Honestly, even though I'm not a huge fan of the movie, again, I think that what it's talking about is absolutely relevant. It's like you need to have this experience. <laughs> Everyone should have to go through this experience at least once to kind of put that into context. 
So that's what Dave, myself, and Mike all thought. Uh, what do you think? You can send any feedback to kylandavevsthemachine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle kdvstm. Uh, if you want to see the entire list of films we've rot- watched uh, for 1971, which is a grand total of two so far, uh, you can go to our Letterbox page, letterbox.com slash kdvstm. And if you want to support us monetarily you can, uh, so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in another apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support us for as low as $1 per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Uh, but something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Uh, so let's get to, to rating this movie here then, Dave. Mike, I always feel so bad when we have a guest on because I'm going to ask you what you would rate this movie out of five. But technically, your rating doesn't matter. <laughs> so but but what would you rate this movie out of five? I want to hear you guys first. Well, this is the hard part. I'll go first here, Dave, is because if I'm talking about cultural relevance, then, of course, I would go like up into like four and a half ish range. But like, honestly, again, as a movie experience that I enjoyed sitting down and watching, um, I didn't. I'm giving it an extra half star just for the Earth, Wind and Fire soundtrack. So I'm giving this movie a one out of five is what I'm rating it as by purely aesthetically <laughs> rating is what I'm rating it. Dave? Yeah, actually, I I feel the same way. I don't know about a four and a half, but I, I do feel like uh, as far as its ability to stir up great conversation, and we talked about with, uh, with Shaft, and I also suggested that I think every movie from 1971, regardless of genre, is going to have this sort of asterisk, but I, I really didn't enjoy watching this movie at all. Uh, so just based on how we've been rating them uh, for the last season and this one, I'm also at a one. Um, uh, I think, though, the asterisk is this, and we've discussed anybody who's listening, if the themes interest you, you have to watch these movies, yeah, whether you want to or not. Um, and if they don't, and you just want to sit down and watch a movie, you know, with your uh, partner or your or your family, or Kyle used to watch movies with his dad, do not watch this movie with your family uh, after dinner. It's not a Disney flick. Okay. <laughs> well, all right. So, as a newbie here. Mm-hmm. What what constitutes a one and what constitutes like is Titanic a five? No, for you Titanic's guys, a one for, for yeah. me. Well, I probably rated <laughs> higher than that, but okay. So I uh, Avatar is a five. Or... Yeah, exactly. Avatar is a perfect five film. No, uh, okay. I'm just I, like I'm, okay, I'm just trying myself. to. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I'll speak for myself again. This is always personal opinion with any art. We actually had a conversation about this on one of our podcasts in our wrap up episode. But for me, like a five is quote unquote, like a perfect film for me. Like I love talking about it. I like rewatching it. Rewatchability is a huge part of my rating system is that I need to want to actually sit down and watch it over and over again. A four generally is very good, but maybe I have a few qualms here and there. In my opinion, a three is kind of like your stasis. It's like there's some good things. There's some bad things. But overall, it's like it's there. It's like I'm not going to remember it too much. Two is like the inverse where it's like. I mostly don't like it, but there's some things I like. And then there's one where, okay, like, there's so not a like, lot here that I can yeah, grab so a like of. A, like, so IMDb, a five is like the Godfather part two or Shawshank or something like that. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but for me, it's Tough Turf. Right, I, right. I, I, yeah, can, yeah. I can watch Tough Turf whenever I get bored. I can throw that thing on. And it's, it's the most ridiculous guilty pleasure trash ever. But. But it's entertaining. It's it's designed to be entertainment. 
And it spoke, it spoke to me as a kid of John Hughes movies and things like that. That that's my era. But, um, and as far as black films go, um, which way is up and nothing but a man trading places. Hmm. Those, those are like my four fives, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. A big comedy fan. Yeah. I mean, as, as a casual viewer, there's not much to see in Sweet Sweet Back at this point. So I would, I would go along with you. I, I have no problem giving it a one. But at the same time, you know, from a historical context, right. yeah. it is a treasure trove. Like if, if you were like Q-tip, the, like if you were a crate digger, there's <laughs> yeah, so much yeah. in this movie. There's so much in this movie if you know what to do with it, you know, that you, you can sample from. It's, it's sort of like a Eugene yeah. McDaniels record, you know? It's like you, you really have to be a deep crate digger aficionado to get Sweet Sweet back. But as a casual viewer, it's a one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, that, and that's why I'm so um, happy that it does like have a Blu-ray release that someone took the time to like do restoration and stuff work on this. Because I think it should be something that is uh, talked about and kept over, knowing full well that it's yeah not going to be for everybody to watch. Yeah, it's not Dolomite. It's not right. Dolomite. All right, well, let's uh, find out what we are going to be watching here next week, Dave. Let me just uh, push this button here. Oh, we are going to be watching, again from 1971, uh, The Andromeda Strain. I'm (laughs) sure completely irrelevant to what is happening in the world currently. (laughs) Is that uh, based on the Michael Crichton book? Yes. Okay. I've never watched the movie, but I've read the book, so Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting. I was born seven years too late. (laughs) (laughs) uh mike thank you so much for being a guest here today um just one last time if people did want to discover a little bit more about you follow what you're up to how can they do so online just any search device search engine device type in the word real black r-e-e-l-b-l-a-c-k and you'll probably find me next to barack obama I don't know why that happens, but it's you Google you mm. Google Michael Dennis real black, and they'll say people also searched for Barack Obama. <laughs> that was my I, I don't I don't know yeah, if that's man. true. Maybe maybe that's my narcissism. <laughs> Kyle, yeah, any anybody listening, please try that yourself. <laughs> because, no, he said for sure it's going to be Barack Obama that you're going to see. No, know? I'm saying I'm saying I I could be a complete narcissist mm-hmm. and think that I'm the only person that that happens to. So anybody, please Google your own name. That would be amazing if that and just see Google if people thing. that would I need to know the answer because I've been I, yeah. very narcissistic these last couple of years. <laughs> I, I also searched Dave Young and it also is Barack Obama as the second. Well, I'm, I'm oh, hoping God. I get Han. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'd, 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 I'd be Han. Yeah. I'm deflated. If that's true, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to apologize to so many people. <laughs> but, uh, but it's true. If you do, if you Google my name and real black, you'll Barack Obama comes up. People also searched for. That's funny. But um, please, please um, don't hurt my feelings if, you know, Brenda Smith types that in and gets the same. Yeah. You could just watch 11 seasons of MASH.